Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast. I'm thankful you decided to join me, your host, Scott Lowe, as I talk today with a very special guest about the journey toward becoming a full stack engineer. If you're new to the show or you're wondering what a full stack engineer is, my definition is that a full stack engineer is someone who's capable of working across multiple silos and moving among multiple layers of the modern data center stack. You don't need to be an expert in all these areas, but you'll want to have expertise in at least one discipline and some reasonable knowledge and proficiency in several more. Now, this is a big goal, and so that's why we call this podcast The Full Stack Journey, because this is an ongoing journey of development and learning. Today, we have a guest joining me, as our usual format is, to talk about his journey and some of the decisions that he's made and maybe some tips and tricks that he has garnered along the way. And our guest today is Chris Wall. Chris, how are you doing? Hey, I'm super snazzy. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for being willing to jump on. I appreciate it. <laughs> Let's just uh, jump right in. So, I mean, obviously, I'm really familiar with who you are because, you know, we run into each other all the time and and uh, you're a host of your own podcast, uh, also part of the Packet Pushers Network. Um, but just in case we have some listeners out there who have never heard of Chris Wall, why don't you just kind of give us a little bit on your background, where you're coming from, what you're doing these days, that kind of stuff. Yeah, groovy. We do tend to run into each other a lot internationally. I don't think <laughs> I've ever seen you on your home turf. But yeah, I'm Chris Wall. Uh, you can find me on the Twitters at Chris Wall. It's W-A-H-L. I run a blog called wallnetwork.com. And as you alluded to, also running a podcast on the Packet Pushers called Data Knots, spelled like astronauts, where we uh, try to break down silos between the various technology groups in the enterprise. So that's me. I also work at Rubrik as a chief technologist. I don't know. What am I missing? I hate talking about myself. So I know what you mean. I always am a little bit hesitant when somebody says, hey, you know, tell us all about yourself. And you're kind of like, eh, you know, but no, I think that's that's good. And, and we'll we'll give listeners uh, another chance towards the end of the show to uh, hear again. Chris is online contact information. You know, if you want to stalk him on Twitter or subscribe to his website or something of that nature. Sweet. Yeah, great. So, Chris, I, I think that you and I have kind of chatted about this idea of full stack and, and that sort of thing before. As a matter of fact, I think we talked on your podcasts a while back about it. <laughs> yeah. So I'd just be interested sort of what is your thought on this thing? I mean, what, where, where do you, where do you stand on this, uh, on this idea? Is it, is it worthwhile? Is it bogus? Just unload on us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, I think it was like five years ago almost that I started doing <laughs> presentations at the VMware user group called, um, Basically, don't be a minesweeper. And it was a play on the old video game, if you even can call it that. You know, the little really horrible game that was preloaded onto Windows where you click the boxes and try not to hit the mine. Or you have to select how many number. you know, the number would tell you how many mines were within the radius of that checkbox. And so um, I equated that to kind of my job as an IT practitioner in that I felt like I was very manual in my day-to-day job. And that all I was really trying to do was not land on a mine and explode. And that could be, you know, deleting user shares or doing something horrible in IT. I felt limited by that. I felt like I couldn't really scale myself. And I mean, I enjoyed IT and I learned what I kind of wanted to at the beginning of, of things, but it, it wasn't really the end goal of my career. And so that's when I started talking about not being a minesweeper and how we can leave the one silo that we know really well or the multiple silos. And I think you're the first person I really heard start talking about full stack engineering. And I felt a little nervous about potentially using that term because I didn't want to like steal from somebody their term. But to get to your actual question, now that I've rambled a little bit about history, 
I think the energy and the idea behind full stack engineering is totally valid. It's not bogus. We obviously talk about it a lot on data knots. And my view on that is that it's kind of like what you said in your introduction. It's not about knowing everything down to the microcode or the firmware. I, I see that sometimes like, oh, you have to write the firmware now because that's the full stack. Like that's a very that's a very cynical way of looking at the term. It is to me like the ability to flex outside of a single or a handful of disciplines to provide that wisdom that you have to what I what I term technically adjacent pieces of the stack. And so it, it plus partial stack engineer doesn't sound as good. No, it does not. Yeah, Full it does stack not. Is better. <laughs> so. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, partial stack or, you know, half stack that just doesn't have the same ring to it. Or the no way stack engineer, like, no way I'm not doing that. Don't be that engineer. You die. You don't want to be that guy. Absolutely. Or, or that gal, either one. So one of the things that I've gotten some feedback about is this thing that people think it's unattainable, right? And, and I would potentially agree because really what we have to cultivate, in my opinion, is a career of lifelong education, lifelong development. Like we always have to be growing. We always have to be learning. We always have to be changing because that's how the technology field is. And so that's kind of why I structured the podcast the way that I did. But I'm just curious, you know, do you think anyone can ever like arrive at being a full stack engineer? Or is this something that we're always pursuing much like, you know, we pursue perfection and never really going to attain it? I sure hope not. That would be pretty boring if you could just win at tech and be done. Um, I tend to look at it and I've I've commonly presented on this idea of it being the, the downward escalator that you're trying to go up. You know, if you stay still, you start losing knowledge because the change is occurring in in the environment. If you're moving at a slow pace, you tend to just remain stagnant. You really, you really have to kind of ramp up and, and keep climbing as fast as you can. So technology doesn't stand still. Can you be the full stack, you know, like the the architect in the end of the Matrix uh, part two? I, I don't think so. <laughs> I think um, I think it's really all about the intent of the term and not about the literal translation of the term. Uh, so it's a great mindset to have, and it's a great a great journey to go into, knowing that uh, it's not about the destination; it's about what you're learning along the way. Right. I love the the uh, escalator analogy. That's a really good one um, because we, you know, I think you and I share a common viewpoint in that if you're not growing and you're not learning and you're not changing, then you are moving down, being left behind um, uh, by just the relentless push of, of technology that, you know, never stops changing, never stops growing, never stops innovating, um, in so many different ways. Very true. And, and I did find that at certain points in my career, there was such an ability to be comfortable and no one's really pushing me to not be comfortable. That can happen. You, you don't even realize that you stopped walking up the escalator and you're just kind of being pushed down and, and you don't notice it because you're comfortable and things are cool and you've automated something and you like watching that happen. And you realize it's been six months since I've written new code or put something new in and, and then you kind of snap out of it. So for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's roll back the years a little bit and, and then go back if, if, if you don't mind to sort of the start looking back on it now in hindsight, kind of what started you on this journey, you were mentioning that, you know, you, you kind of felt like you were that, you know, that, Minesweeper, and you wanted to get out of that. What prompted you? Was it, was it a, a strictly internal sort of thing? Like I don't want to be this way. Was there an external force that kind of you know got you going, or, or what was it? It was actually a movie called Office Space. I don't know if you've seen it, but essentially they're they're trying to fix the Y two K bug, and the developers are sitting in their cubicles, basically hating their life, working on PC low litter errors on their printer. And I was I was in school 
I had spent a long time kind of hacking on computers in school and, and school labs, and I was working on my CS degree. And uh, I saw this movie, and I'm like, wow, that's that's going to be my life for a while because you know you can't really predict the future of tech. So I, I pivoted at that point to network and communications management. You know, basically network engineering, communications management at the time was like PBXs and stuff. Uh, so it was it was pre DSL and, and cable and things like that. So that that was the first wake up call that I had. And I found that I just really liked working with hardware. It was the first time I'd really spent time building computers and setting up networks. And you know, at the time, it was 100 megabit and 10 megabit hubs. So it wasn't as cool as it is today. But it was like Lego that cost a lot of money and had interesting output beyond just, you know, hey, here's this half-baked house that I built. So that's kind of where I started on this. And, and there's been multiple pivot points throughout my career. But that, that was the first time that I really had one of those epiphanies like, Oh my gosh, what if I'm 60 and still doing this? That sounds horrible. I don't I definitely don't want to be that guy. No, no, not at all. And uh I haven't seen Office Space, so now that you mention it, I might need to go back and and actually watch it just for the entertainment value. Moving forward, like what were some of these other pivot points if you don't mind sharing with the listeners? Like what else have you run into and and how did you respond? I think that might be useful for listeners. They may be in the exact same spot where you were at one point. Yeah. I mean, the next major ones, there was a couple that I can remember off the top of my head. I, I was a one-man administrator dealing with every problem you can think of, from printers and phones to servers, surveillance equipment, all that kind of jazz. And that was really what spawned me into the Minesweeper presentation. And this was like up till 2005, uh, where I realized that I was limited by the abilities that I had. I couldn't actually do any more because I had no one else to really challenge me intellectually. You know, I, I went to user groups and peer groups, but I really needed someone that was smarter than me to say, no, no, this is a better way or, or this is a more efficient way or here's this technology that you that you need. And that was when I realized I wanted to embark on a challenge to do stuff I didn't know how to do. Uh, so that was going from like a one-man shop to a slightly larger shop with I think three or four people. Uh, and then beyond that, it was really just realizations that the amount of ability that I had as an administrator, as a sysadmin for a long time, I mean, I cut my teeth on tapes and, and mainframe and things like that was limited by the fact that I had given up on my CS roots, you know, my computer science degree. And if I could learn automation and some code and things like that, I could ultimately work less and potentially get paid the same amount of money. That was my first kind of, you know, like everybody wants to get paid. That's why we're working. So I started learning PowerShell at the time. This was 2008, just so I could start automating bits and pieces so that I could get back to playing World of Warcraft at the time. I was playing it way too much. So I've had the worst motivations to not keep being the person that I was, you know, it's, it's like a bad movie that made me scared for the future and wanting to play video games. So maybe people will relate to that. I don't know. <laughs> it seems like maybe I'm a little niche. No, I don't, I don't think you're all that niche. I think there's probably more people out there with similar motivations than, than anybody realizes looking kind of where you are now and the changes you've made and looking ahead, knowing that this is an ongoing journey. I'm curious, have you sort of mapped out you know, the next three or four things that you're going to try and tackle, or are you just going to be a little more responsive to the market and see what happens? I'm curious if you have some recommendations, like if there were a listener listening to the show, cause you know, one of my big things about the show is I want listeners to walk away from the show with actionable, practical information that they can, you know, take away not just a, well, that was a nice conversation between two guys, but Hey, I got, you know, these specific technologies that, you know, Chris was interested in that I can go evaluate and see whether they have value for me. Or I got these couple of t tips or tricks for 
enhancing my own learning experience or whatever the case may be. Right. So along those lines, you know, looking at this being this ongoing journey, looking ahead, I'm curious to know, like, what are the three or four things that are kind of top of mind for you? Not just right now, but moving like kind of not just where you are, but where you want to be. Yeah. I guess I would break that down into like the general compass that I follow and, and then probably some specific examples. So from a, you know, what am I looking at kind of thing? I tend to read a lot. I consume so much stuff on, on Kindle that uh, I probably should just go with the unlimited account, but I never do. I like owning things. I tend to read a lot of books and that's my compass. And that means that I'm always one to two years out of date, but I'm okay with that because I feel like by the time something more cutting edge from a book perspective has been put together, it, it has a little bit of mass behind it. I'd hate to dive into something that's so immature and new that that I dive into it a little bit and it dies. So maybe I'm less bleeding edge and maybe a little more cutting edge if, if you want to use the terminology there. And the, the two things that I'm looking for are, is it something that I can read or learn about as a technology that I can leverage for looking at the enterprise infrastructure landscape and getting components to talk to one another? I mean, that's always been a hobby and a passion of mine from a data center perspective. And it really can apply beyond the data center these days. You know, components can be virtual or, or cloud-based or whatnot. So that's one thing that I, I tend to point towards. And the other one is, man, if it's if it's an API of some sort, I get really excited about it. I don't even know why. About four years ago, I started working with uh, RESTful API specifically. And there's something just so groovy about looking at, I don't know, this abstracted way to talk to a component and get it to, to do, you know, to do your bidding. You know, ah, dance, monkey, dance. Uh, except it's a million dollar piece of equipment. Like that's fun. I used to write code to Cisco UCS blade chassis just to get like the, the LEDs, the LEDs to, to blink on and off in certain patterns and things like that. And it's just so useless, but for some reason I found it riveting and that's like how I learned to write code against these different things. So those are the two things I tend to look at from a tech specific perspective. I've spent a lot of time wanting to really know Git, which is the distributed version control framework language, whatever, you know, code, uh, and GitHub specifically, because I feel like that's such a useful way to, to build with others. It's a very community empowering type of thing. You know, I've done a lot of work on GitHub with other people and that's awesome because, uh, the best way to learn is to teach, I think. And the best way to do that is to obviously interact with other people. It's hard to be your own classroom. Uh, and obviously PowerShell still my language of choice. I I'm always, I would love to sit down and learn like Go and .NET and Scala and things that, you know, quote unquote, full-fledged software packages that, that, that the real developers are using. I lack the time at the moment. So I, I kind of stay true to my PowerShell roots because I've been working with that language for the better part of nine years now. Um, and hey, it's actually available on things that aren't Windows, which is kind of cool. And and then in that same vein, anything Azure just has me kind of riveted at the moment. I'm, I'm working with Azure Resource Manager, you know, ARM. And even Terraform, I feel like, is something cool that kind of works in that space. Uh, so those are, I guess, three examples I can think of off the top of my head are things that I'm I'm looking at. And nothing I think is shocking there, but it's a great foundation if you haven't looked at those things. Yeah, that's no, that's very useful. I think that listeners could definitely get um, some value out of looking at any of those uh, specific pieces. So uh, I want to come back to the technologies, the specific technologies in just a moment, but before I do that, I heard you mention you read a lot. So I want to take a quick aside and just say, <laughs> what have you been reading recently? Like what are the last two books that you read? Maybe not fiction, but like, you know, technically that they'd help you with your compass and, or are there other titles that you think, you know, listeners, Hey, you would be well, do well to, to have a look at this title. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a couple that I promote quite a bit. The Site Reliability Engineering book, I think that was an O'Reilly publication. It's just awesome. And and people say, I'm not Google. I get it. I'm not either. I don't know how they run their business. But I do like the SRE book because it talks a lot about the theory of running things in a very distributed, very fast-paced environment. And the idea behind air budgets and things, really, I've never heard of them before. I don't think anybody really had in my realm, you know, the infrastructure ops kind of realm. So I love that book. And it's very nerdy. There's the common ones that I think everyone's promoted and gives a thumbs up to, like the DevOps handbook. You know, Gene Kim and his cohorts are are awesome. And I think they're just fun to to read. I actually have started reading books that are totally out of out of my space to try to, again, threaten my own knowledge a little bit. So there's an X-Unit test patterns book that I've been just chewing through really slowly to learn how to do unit testing. Because I feel like in order to really write code for GitHub and for other people, uh, you have to start with unit testing, which is kind of the test-driven development or TDD methodology. Uh, so you write your test first, and then you write code that goes against the test until it starts passing. So I find that very fascinating. It, it just totally challenges the way that I've done scripting. My scripts are, for the longest time have been just atrocious uh, until I realized there's, there's like better ways and quote-unquote right ways to do it. That's been great. And then there's also a bunch of books that I don't think were really applied to me day to day, but I want to know what people are thinking. So example, uh, there's a building microservices book that I went through. I'm never going to write a microservice. I don't think I will, but I don't want to just talk about them in the abstract. I don't want to just be, you know, like I I kind of foo-foo on a lot of analysts that talk as if they've been building microservices for the last 20 years and have never even touched one and don't even know really what they're talking about. I want to at least know at the theory level from practitioners what they're doing. So I think those are three examples, aside from the plethora of fiction that I love to read. I'm, I'm really into sci-fi and fantasy. So those are the techie books. Well, we could have a separate conversation about the sci-fi fantasy stuff because it's one of my favorites as well. But we'll we'll spare the listeners um, yeah. that, that conversation <laughs> and we'll do that separately sometime. So yeah, the, the Building Microservices book, I think you're referring to the O'Reilly title that Sam Newman wrote, which is a, a really good book. I'm about halfway through that book right now. That's exactly the one. Yeah. And, and it is really, really good. Um, I'm, I'm with you. I think, I don't think that I'll necessarily ever write, ever write a microservices based application, but getting an idea of the design considerations and things like how to establish the boundaries between the services and the importance of stable APIs as you break the services apart and all these kind of things are, I think very important sort of things to have as we talk about you know, this bigger picture view of a, of a full stack engineer and, and what he or she looks at. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think it's, it's not just, I think people get a little hung up and, and I did originally too. I got really hung up on the, the engineering, the implementation, you know, can I actually build it? And the answer is no, I can't build it, but I at least have an understanding of what it needs from an input and output perspective. So that when I craft my speciality, which is traditionally data center architecture, I can complement what they're trying to do and at least have a, a conversation where we understand the lingo and we can, you know, they're speaking Klingon, I'm speaking human or Vulcan or something like that. And, and we know each other's language, which I think is, is communication is so quintessential in the enterprise that just conquering that barrier is like 90% of the work. So I agree with you 100%. Yeah, wholeheartedly, anything that you can do to facilitate communications among the groups within enterprise IT is going gonna, is gonna to reap you know, just tremendous benefits. And I think, and we may have mentioned this before with, with other guests, but if nothing else, this, this journey 
is good for helping to break down the silos and, and teach you that vocabulary so that you know when you go talk to the networking team what they're talking about or when you go talk to the security team, you know the key things that they're concerned about or what their their key you know goals are. When you go to the application developers and they're talking about DevOps or test-driven development or any of those sort of things, you at least know what that is and what that means. And you can use that as a valid input to what you're trying to accomplish, um, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, LeVar Burton wasn't wrong. You know, the, the reading rainbow is, is, is clutch. Got to keep reading. <laughs> keep reading, kids. That's right. It makes your brain wrinkle, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing, absolutely. All right, so now let's go back to the technologies. And you mentioned uh, a, a few of them. So Git and, by extension, GitHub, which, of course, is based on Git. PowerShell as your preferred language. And then you said you were kind of enamored by um, Azure at the moment, in particular Azure Resource Manager and potentially Terraform. Let's just talk about those like real quick. I'll spend a little bit of time, perhaps a little more time in PowerShell because I, there's a couple of things that you've mentioned during this conversation I think would be applicable to the listeners. But starting out with Git, what drove you to, to, to choose Git? I mean, was it just because that seemed to be the predominant piece or was there something else? <laughs> well, I mean, after dealing with VSS, uh, the Visual Source Safe and Team Foundation Server, and then Tortoise SVN and other things. Those, those are all like kind of uh, master-slave-based version control systems. I was very unhappy with how those work. And to be honest with you, I wanted something that I could use for version control that was super lightweight, that was for a, an army of one. And the neat thing about Git, and by the way, of the, of the tech I listed, that's probably number one clear winner. If you haven't learned it, go learn it. You know, my recommendation could not get any stronger to go learn that. Because what I wanted to do was start writing code and then treating just me, my army of one, in a very kind of community-driven, version-control-driven artifact, you know, controlling the artifacts that I was writing, driven methodology, so that as I expanded my projects to include other people, that it wouldn't be a huge change. You know, because traditionally what I was doing was either renaming the files as I made changes or just copy-pasting stuff or using, like, shadow copies within Windows or versioning within Dropbox. And I wanted something that was a legitimate version control system so that I could, for an example, fork my project and go a completely different direction or create branches, which are kind of like snapshots where you can explore an idea to fruition. If you don't like it, you can kind of backtrack and, and go a different way. Git seemed very, it's everywhere. It's been around a very long time. Uh, there's actually some decent tools out there, uh, such as Git Shell and the GitHub for Windows installers for folks like myself that are very enamored with the Windows platform so that I could start using this stuff. And I don't know, it's really cool to uh, when you get someone else that has written something or even edited your documentation or, or something along those lines on GitHub and they give it to you as like a pull request saying, here, I have made your thing a better thing. That is the best feeling in the world. And so it's kind of like technology drugs. Once you start on Git, you can't quit it. Maybe there's a better better analogy. I don't know, but <laughs> it's it's just so much fun. No, no, it, that's, uh, that's totally fine. I think some people might contest the combination of Git and the word fun, but... <laughs> Especially when you have a merge, uh, um, a merge conflict. That's, that's not <laughs> yes, fun. But, that's not fun, right. But you learn a lot. <laughs> You do learn a lot, that's for sure. So out of out of your process of learning Git, it sounds like some of the tools that were really useful to you were GitHub um, as a you know sort of a hosted service that 
complements your own local use of Git. Uh, and in particular with that, the Windows version of GitHub, the GitHub client, which lets you kind of more easily install Git onto Windows. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really use the, the graphical interface very much because I will. I mean, this is also many years ago and they well, they kind of sucked. They weren't that great. So I ended up going to code school before it was acquired by Pluralsight and signing up for their Git real G.I.T. and then real course. Uh, the first one's free and it was all line command which if you're going to handle conflicts at the merge level or try to do you know, hard or soft resets and things like that, it just seems to be the way to, to do it. And honestly, when I go to a bunch of meetups like uh, Chef meetups and, and other meetups like that, they're all using the line command. That's the lingo that they know, the presenter or the, the group knows. So, so I went down that route. So I forced myself to learn the command line version first and foremost. Now there's so many visual you know, graphics interface like uh, – the GitHub actual client. There's a bunch of other ones. I think Axosoft has one and, and Visual Source Code, uh, Visual Studio Code, rather, uh, VS Code from Microsoft also has it built in. So it's not really a huge deal nowadays, but I still would advise learning the command line version uh, because when you hit a conflict or something like that, it's it's not easy to solve, usually with the graphic interface. Right, right. And and I would agree. And, and folks, there are, there are tons of, of great resources out there for learning Git. Um, one that has been mentioned by a couple of different um, guests on the show is the uh, the Pro Git book, which is available from the uh, the Git website, um, and we'll put that in the show notes. I read through that and found it very useful. Um, but certainly, there are lots of other resources, such as the ones that uh, Chris has mentioned here. Part of this might be because you're coming out of a of a CS background, which kind of lends you more towards a development mindset. But I'm curious for folks who maybe don't have that development mindset. And this is the thing that I wanted to pull out from little pieces that I've heard you mention here and there. I could almost see where a listener who hasn't done a lot of scripting or a lot of programming or hasn't messed with version control systems, anything of that nature might, might listen to this conversation and hear us talking about test-driven development and unit tests and, and you know, repositories and da-da-da and feel like they're maybe a fish out of water, right? <laughs> you know. Did the programming side of, of what you're doing, you're talking about using PowerShell and focusing on PowerShell for automation, did that come fairly naturally to you because of your CS background? Or did you find you had to change your mindset and your way of learning as you were going through that process? Uh, I don't think the CS stuff helped that much. It was about a decade between when I kind of, I mean, I learned COBOL and Fortran and, and BASIC and you know JavaScript. These aren't very popular languages. So it's probably a decade between when I stopped dealing with those and then transitioned to a job where there was a ton of developers and a very small ops team, and I was running the ops team. And I had to kind of relearn, okay, what are you using for doing version control? Okay, Tortoise SVN, I got to go learn that. And what's your build server and the various environments? So it was really kind of relearning from scratch by having to be the infrastructure operations manager for dozens and dozens of developers and learning from them what they're doing and then picking up PowerShell because it was a very .NET and uh, Silverlight-driven shop. And so PowerShell was, was new on the scene. It was kind of .NET-like. It was, I was very Windows-oriented. And so I, I spent probably the better part of two or three years just trying to absorb as much information as I could from the developers. And they were pretty cool because they didn't know squat about infrastructure. And so we really had a lot of pizza time at various lunches where we would just talk about technology. I would literally go and buy a stack of pizzas, like 15 to 20 pizzas and invite the entire dev team out and my ops team out to just mingle and become friends. And 
this was like 2009, I think, something like that. So that helped a lot. I mean, it wasn't really the CS degree to, to be a shorter version of the answer. It was learning people that were in the trenches doing it and uh, trying to pick their brain for every kernel of wisdom that I could. And so you would you would probably advise you know to listeners who are, are kind of in that same boat that that's a path they should dig. They should go find some you know developers or somebody who is you know sort of um, developer focused, right, and and begin to pick their brain as a way of gathering that. Or, or you know, is there another approach maybe that you would have taken looking back on it now? I, I think it worked well because originally there was a lot of friction between the two departments because at first blush. You know, if you're in infrastructure and you've done it for a while, you know what a LUN and a, and a VLAN and, and a virtual machine and those things are. And I felt like the, the culture was a little acidic because there was this, well, you're stupid. I'm using kind of air quotes. You're, you're a stupid engineer because you don't know what these are. But the developers don't need to know that stuff. Uh, and they, they thought we were stupid because we didn't know, you know, how to write code and, and, you know, these things that they could crank out really, really easily. And we were like, we have no idea what you're doing, you know, or, or you're pushing this to stage environment. What's a staging environment? We don't know. What's a build server? We don't know. Um, and so everybody likes pizza. Well, and, and we got a lot of vegetarian pizzas, too. I mean, you, you can appease everybody. Gluten. There's gluten free crust. Yep, I mean, yep, yep. Everybody's appeased. So just breaking bread and, and having food. The first couple months of it was pretty kind of quiet. And then over time, it's just like, hey, it's a thing that we do. We're one team. And uh, I think it was a great way to to break the ice. Obviously, you need someone with a little bit of budget to procure the pizzas and, and kind of get the two environments together. But we ended up buying the pizza and splitting some of the costs with them. So it was kind of a little, little bit of a split, uh, but yeah, I would definitely advise it. Yeah. But I mean, I suppose even from an individual perspective, I mean, that's great in, in your case, cause you were, you know, the infrastructure operations manager. So you, you know, you had some, some influence over that group and that sort of thing. Right. But from an individual's perspective, even then you could just say, Hey, you know, Mr. Developer, Mrs. Developer, whatever the case may be. I don't know squat about what you do and how you do it. I'd love to buy you lunch and pick your brain. Yeah. And in fact, after that job, I started working for a very large corporation as one of like two ops people doing virtualization specifically. And we'd have a number of, you know, the four or the six of us would go. I'd, I'd invite some folks that were kind of running software development or some of the the, the project managers involving or uh, in charge of, of software development. And we'd go out to lunch to like a Buffalo Wild Wings or something and literally just kind of talk shop and, and shoot the shoot the breeze. And that was also good, too, because I found most technologists, whether or not they're building software or building hardware or, or being an ops, there's there's passion and pride for what they do. And they're not shy about sharing their passion. They love this stuff, or at least you hope they do. And they're going to like talking about it if you're a respectful and receptive audience. I would agree with that. I think one of the things that often brings techies from different disciplines together is that, that common passion for, you know, they just love the technology, even though they may be approaching it from a very different direction or a very different aspect of it. They still just love the technology, love getting in and doing what they're doing. And so, uh, you know, to echo your comments, if you're respectful and you're receptive, then they're going to be super excited to find somebody who actually wants to listen to them go on about technology rather than, you know, rolling their eyes and, and walking away or something like that, which is what we often get when we start, you know, talking about technology to somebody who's not interested. Exactly. It's hard. It's hard to find a captive audience sometimes to, to, to go nerdy with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So providing that captive audience gives them the opportunity to get all nerdy and starts forming relationships. And then, you know, you can share with them what you're doing. They can share with you what they're doing. And that begins to start that cross-pollination and, and sort of introduce you. 
Moving on to that last one, the last technology that you mentioned, Azure, Azure Resource Manager, is there a particular reason, uh, maybe perhaps because of your strong Windows background, that Azure is appealing to you versus you know, AWS? Well, someone many years ago kind of gave me some advice. Said, pick a language and pick a cloud and just go for it. And I already knew PowerShell. And I don't know, I just wasn't that interested in AWS specifically. I, I, was, I was more interested in the Azure world. And this is... Back, it wasn't even called that back then. It was like Microsoft Cloud something or other, or Scalable Cloud. I don't know. Who, who cares? But I was, I was enjoying playing with it because the PowerShell community is, is really strong when it comes to collaboration. We have Slack channels. We have Yammer. There's, you know, as an MVP, there's like nine different ways we can talk to one another. And there was a lot of work being done to automate, automate the Azure resources. Uh, and then ARM came out, the Azure Resource Manager, and it just got even better. And then a PowerShell module. And it just was like, okay. I'm already so steeped in this environment anyways, and I have like buckets of credits to use. I'm not going to be too picky about which cloud that I go for because my takeaway from working with public cloud is they're all different and they're all kind of the same. It's just the differences make them unique and and the verbiage is typically what's majorly different. Uh, But the concepts at the cloud layer tend to be very transferable. Uh, so I wasn't worried about you know Azure disappearing or or gaining skills that that were not really relevant in the workplace. I figured no matter what I pick, I'd at least know kind of the cloud story to some degree. Uh, and obviously, yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty deep in the Microsoft ecosystem, so I can't ignore that. Well, no, I, it makes sense, and that and, and I kind of thought that might be the case um, why Azure made a little more sense to you. In that we've talked before with other guests on on, on the podcast about how it's important to be a, a little bit strategic around the technologies that you're choosing and trying to find where these technologies are complementary or will support one another. So if you have heavily invested a bunch of time in PowerShell and you're, and you're very, very familiar with PowerShell and I think congrats on the, I think it was a relatively recent re-announcement to MVP. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, got, got yeah. Renewed. I, I don't know why. Right. Okay. Just magic. Roll the dice. Imagine. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so congrats on that, by the way. But, um, you already spent this time investing in PowerShell, then it does kind of make sense to leverage that or with services or offerings that are also going to take advantage of that, right? And so if Azure has great support for PowerShell and there's a PowerShell module for Azure and that sort of thing, then yeah, that makes a lot of sense because you're you're building on expertise you've already developed. I mean, obviously there's a point at some which where you have to challenge and move beyond that, right? I think when you focus too much on that, too much on building these incremental technology pieces, right? That's when you start getting very, very comfortable and find yourself moving backward on the, on the escalator. But certainly there's, there's value to be had in that. So that makes a lot of sense. And now Azure Resource Manager, correct me if I'm wrong, that's a similar to like a templating language for turning up Azure resources. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I, I kind of go to both ARM and Terraform because I like to know the, the two, I don't really know Terraform that well, well at all, uh, but we recorded a show on Datanauts recently where someone was using that along with Chef to build out labs. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I, I looked at this like forever ago from HashiCorp. I should probably relook at it. So it's, it's back on my list because uh, I don't want to build configuration. You know, I don't want to do infrastructure as code with a cloud specific, you know, template or, or language uh, only I'd like to know it beyond that so that I can apply it kind of holistically so that, that that's where that ended the equation. Well, I can wholeheartedly recommend uh, Terraform. I'm a huge Terraform fan 
and uh, and use it when I'm interacting with AWS for sort of the same reasons that uh, Azure made sense to you. AWS made sense to me because they are a little more, um, uh, let's make up a term and say Linuxy, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> in terms of you know how the command line works and how the APIs function and sort of the way the services are built, it, it uh, made sense to me based on my background, much in the same way that Azure, you know, kind of made sense to you based on your background. Um, but Terraform is a great, great, great resource. Um, love, love the tool. Um, lots of exciting things happening there. So we're, we're getting close to our, our end of time. Um, I, I want to be respectful of your time and of course also respectful of the listener's time. So I don't want to run too terribly long, but sort of looking a little farther out, what's, what's on the fringe of your radar right now? What's, what's interesting, but you know, you mentioned you're, you kind of like maybe are a little farther behind than the bleeding edge. So what's out there a little too far for you to get into right now, but you're tracking it carefully. Yeah. I probably divide that into personal endeavors and professional, you know, a lot of my learning tends to stem from what I do in the house. You know, I've had a home lab forever, that kind of jazz. So the home automation and kind of the the IoT, the Internet of Things sphere that, that wraps around home automation is, is very interesting to me. I have a lot of one-off things in the house because I like to play with their API and check out the developer environment. And I keep seeing these these hackathons that I want to go to where it's like, oh, let's uh, let's use the you know the wristband that you're wearing at night based that looks at your sleep goals, and when you reach the sleep goal, it auto turns on your lights and it it changes it to a specific color. And I'm like, that sounds really cool. Like it's a lot of work and potentially doesn't have a huge payoff, but that sounds really interesting. Primarily, I think because I can remember a time where this was completely not possible. This was science fiction. And the fact that now it's like, oh yeah, you can do this pretty easily and it's you can you can see it with your own two eyes uh, is pretty cool to me. And I, and I have a lot of those things in there. And you know, frankly, any proper home project is supposed to eat up your time and money, right? So let's do it. The professional side of things, which is probably more prevalent to the audience, is uh, I'd really like to tap into more what Google's doing. I was at Google's uh, Google Cloud Next 17 earlier this year. I think that was March, talking to the developer relations folks and looking at their vast amount of APIs to dig through their images and, and look at video. And I, I call it like the big data stockpiles that they have. And they're giving you a lot of access to tinker with that. I don't know what I'm going to find there, to be honest with you, but it seems interesting. I'd like to try it out. So that's in my future plans. And in addition to that, I just I find the Google Compute environment interesting. I'd like to get more into uh, their scheduler, you know, the Kubernetes world, and potentially start building multi-cloud environments across you know, Azure and Google. Because I have credits in both, which is kind of cool. You know, MVP and Google Cloud give me a bunch of credits. So I'd like to actually use those. And somehow it's it's those two technologies with, with some Docker and Kubernetes thrown in. And Grafana is somewhere in my radar because I haven't touched it in a couple of years. And I used to be really big into that. All of that together, I would like to build that out uh, for a new home lab that is completely cloud-based. Uh, where Terraform and other config managers are, are spinning up and down what I need on demand. So... I think that's going to be many years from now before I get the time to do that. But it feels like that's a good way to build a practical thing, for lack of a better term, you know, an actual lab environment that I can leverage for tinkering as well as learning a ton. Because I imagine this is going to be a lot of a lot of headache and a lot of failure before I get it even marginally successful. Yeah, so that I having spent the last, uh, let's say, eight or nine months being completely cloud-based because I shut down my own home lab 
Congrats. When I moved into the, the new house in November. Thank you. Um, there is a lot of, a lot of, uh, work around it and, uh, some changing in, in terms of how you do things, right? You get accustomed to doing things a certain way and now you have to kind of change that way. And, and, but that's good. It's, it's all about learning. It's all about challenging the, the existing assumptions and, and, uh, and, and getting a new set of takeaways from that. So it's been, it's been valuable. I think you'll find it, uh, equally valuable as you, as you <laughs> head down that, that effort. So great. Well, hey, Chris, I have really, really enjoyed the conversation. There's some very useful information in here for the listeners. I think they're going to get a lot out of it. As we wrap up, any, any sort of final closing thoughts, you know, pithy words of wisdom that you would like to share with, with listeners? Well, I mentioned Git and GitHub. And if you're a little fearful of that because, oh, my gosh, it's new. Um, my recommendation, I've got two projects on GitHub. You're welcome to join in, edit the documentation, which is something that you, Scott, have have kind of uh, evangelized quite a bit as a starting point. Uh, so there's Vester. It's, it's, it's V-E-S-T-E-R. That's a config management. Uh, it's open source uh, for VMware environments. And we've got tons of people working on it. Um, I, I'm just kind of like owning it at this point. I'm not even really contributing code anymore. So jump on in. Ask questions if you want to get started with, with an open source project. Go on over there. And uh, we also have a Slack channel on the VMware code uh, Slack team. Uh, so you can join our channel there. And uh, it's a very friendly and positive environment. Uh, you're welcome to, to jump on in there. Yeah, that's a great idea. You know, it's certainly improving documentation is a great way to get started in, in helping with the project. And if you're just now getting sort of accustomed to the idea of commits and commit messages and all that kind of stuff, then this is a, a you know, a nice way to, to get started and, um, uh, you know, benefits, uh, the, the entire community as a way. So I'm glad you brought that up listeners. You should definitely have a look at that and we'll, we'll include those resources in the show notes. All right. So let's wrap things up. Chris, why don't you tell listeners again, where they can find you online so that they can stalk you. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, Twitter is at Chris wall. The blog is wallnetwork.com and the podcast is data knots spelled like astronauts. And they can get the data knots link, uh, off of the packet pushers website, right? Yeah, or you can go to datanotspodcast.com. Okay, perfect. Excellent. All right, fantastic. So listeners, you have a way to uh, follow what Chris is doing online and, um, and learn from, from him, uh, as, as I have in this episode. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen in on this episode. As always, if you have feedback, you're more than welcome to hit me up. Um, I am at Scott underscore low on Twitter. Um, the website, blog.scottlow.org. And you can get the Full Stack Journey podcast Available via iTunes, also available from uh, PacketPushers.net as part of the Packet Pushers Network. And uh, thanks so much for joining. We'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.